0: Welcome Inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. This week, we head to the meadows and woods of West Virginia to catch the buzz on beekeeping.
1: Getting into my hives the first time, I, they always say that you could, they can smell fear. No, I was too excited for that.
0: And it's been five years since Kentucky artist Lacey Hale designed her iconic No Hate and My Holler screen print. Appalachians are still telling her how much they identify with its message.
2: Having something that they can um, get behind and say, look, you know, we're not all backward. We're not all the stereotypical, you know, he'll, you know um, homophobic, racist, hillbillies.
0: We also revisit our interview with Trevor Hammonds. The young banjo player decided to carry on his family's traditions of storytelling, wild lore, and old-time music.
3: Whenever I picked up the banjo, I was just, it's like I flew away with it. It, it came so natural to me. I don't like to say, but I didn't have to try to play it.
0: You'll hear these stories and more this week, Inside Appalachia. Welcome Inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. Today, we begin among the trees, in stands of black locust and tulip poplars, with this report from Folkways reporter Margaret Leaf, who checks in with a community of West Virginia beekeepers
4: in Summers County, West Virginia, Mark Lilly is inspecting his honeybee hives. He's checking on his swarm's honey production.
5: So this colony is doing really well building up for the spring. We're
4: probably
5: three weeks plus before the flow.
4: The flow Mark is referring to is the honey. Honey from West Virginia is often tree honey. Bees collect nectar from flowering trees such as black locust and tulip poplar.
5: And I think we could probably prove that the Appalachian area provides world-class honey.
4: Mark's in his 60s and grew up in Raleigh County, West Virginia. He's been keeping bees for over 25 years. Recently, there's been an increase in new beekeepers in West Virginia. According to Shanda King, West Virginia's state apiarist, beekeeping is on the rise, as is the number of colonies per beekeeper. Sarah Ann McClanahan of Charleston, West Virginia, is one of them.
1: Getting into my hives the first time, they always say that they can smell fear. No, I was too excited for that.
4: Sarah Ann recently took over her aunt's hives. After lifting the top off one of the hives, she pumps a smoker to calm the agitated bees.
1: We are going to force these guys to go down.
4: Sarah Ann's had a lot of help learning to keep bees. She has a co-worker who has hives, and he's become her mentor. Mark also had a mentor early on. His grandfather was big into bees. He kept bees and hollowed out logs. He usually used gum trees, which decayed from the inside out, making them perfect for honeybee hives.
5: It was a section of a log with a piece of wood or tin on top of it uh, and comb in there, and he would just take a big aluminum dishpan and a bread knife and cut out the top, which is where the honey was stored.
4: Mark's grandfather kept bees for the honey. It brought the family together when he'd plunk the aluminum pan with honeycomb on the center of the table beside fresh biscuits. But beekeepers in West Virginia today are getting into beekeeping for more than the honey. And Mark should know. As the master beekeeper for the Appalachian Beekeeping Collective, Mark teaches free classes via Zoom to new beekeepers. That includes teaching how beekeepers today keep their swarms.
5: Uh, A lot of information out uh, about faroamite, and although that's not going to be our entire class tonight... While Mark
4: absorbed a lot lot about beekeeping by watching his grandfather, he discovered much of what he learned through his own research and by attending statewide conferences. He's now part of a tight-knit network of beekeepers around West Virginia. And so is Sarah Ann. Through social media, she's connected with beekeepers around the state. Facebook groups
1: have been amazing. I've learned a lot about bees by going to the women, West Virginia Women Beekeepers Association retreat
4: in July. The retreat Sarah Ann attends each summer is hosted by Phyllis Varian, who founded the Women Beekeepers of West Virginia. Phyllis noticed beekeeping in West Virginia was male-dominated. She started the retreat to give women hands-on experience with bees. She also created a Facebook page that the women use to help with their beekeeping quandaries. Sarah Ann is a big fan of the group.
1: Some people have questions and I'm just like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Let's see what everybody says.
4: Sarah Ann is bonded with people from all walks of life through beekeeping. And the same is true for Mark in his work with The Collective.
5: The beautiful part of The Collective is this great cross-section of society. And we've got young teens, all the way up to more senior citizens, different ethnic backgrounds. I'd be comfortable in saying at least 50% of the collective members are are ladies, and we all can gain something from hearing about other people's successes and and their mistakes. We can learn from that, too.
4: For both Sarah Ann and Mark, sharing their beekeeping knowledge also means teaching the next generation. Sarah Ann spends time in the bee yard with her 9-year-old son. His favorite part of the process enjoying the honey.
1: My son is a peanut butter and honey sandwich eater every day. He eats probably a jar a month and I can't hardly keep it in stock.
4: And Mark spends evenings working the bees with his kids and grandkids. He hopes they'll share his admiration for the bees and the way they work together.
5: This hive is their community and they all want to see it prosper and that's for the community or the hive uh, to be healthy, uh, to produce everything it needs uh, food-wise, protect each other, and I think we could all learn to get along like honeybees.
4: It seems that beekeepers in West Virginia have as much to learn from honeybees as they do each other. For Inside Appalachia, this is Margaret McCloud Leaf in Summers County, West Virginia.
0: To see photos of the colorful hives of West Virginia beekeepers, visit our website, wvpublic.org. And speaking of colorful, a new mural in Pound, Virginia, near the Kentucky border, depicts an old woman smoking a pipe and holding a baby wrapped in a big, bright quilt. The mural honors Nancy Mullen Shores, a beloved local midwife. It's part of a growing body of work by artist Lacey Hale, who's been painting murals and turning out viral images from eastern Kentucky for years, including No Hate and My Holler a screen print she designed in 2017 in response to a Nazi rally. But the last five years, that image keeps coming back on social media, on billboards. I wanted to talk with Lacey about that. But first, I asked her about that mural of Nancy Mullen Shores.
2: We had several community meetings to see what the projects were going to be about. And this Granny Shores kept coming up, Granny Shores, Granny Shores. When talking about Granny Shores, I found out that she was a midwife in the very early days of Pound who delivered over a thousand babies. So she was born in 1867, and she passed away in 1945. Her husband was a doctor, and she went apparently to some of his appointments with him, and that's how she kind of got into becoming a midwife, she boasted that she never lost a mother and she lost very few babies. So, so basically everybody early on in Pound, Virginia, was delivered by this woman, this Granny Shores.
0: So she like literally birthed the town in some way. <laughs>
2: basically, yeah. like she She's the mother of, of Pound. <laughs> yeah. I also forgot to mention that, you know, for the, the folks that may not click over and see the picture of the mural, that she is smoking a pipe. And even, and she's holding a baby, but apparently she was rarely without her pipe. That is something that, you know, I heard over and over again that she always had a pipe in her mouth. Yeah. She was, she was quite, quite the woman, apparently.
0: (laughs) What a woman. What a woman. (laughs) That's incredible. Yeah. This Granny Shores mural, you know, you see her, but then a lot of it's dominated by this very prominent quilt. Can you tell me more about that?
2: Whenever I do a piece of public art, if I'm working with the community, I want the community to be involved. I cut all these like nine by nine pieces of polytab, which is basically parachute material. And I broke those down into a nine square quilt. And we had a community painting day. We had paint markers and paint pens and we let people from the community come and um, they got to sit down and fill out the quilt any way they wanted to. It was kind of like a modern day quilting bee, I guess, (laughs) you know, because they could sit there with their own little quilt square and decide how they wanted to make it. And then so there was younger people. I think we had a kid there that was probably four or five that did one. And it was like more like a Jackson Pollock splatter type. Like he was just like, you know, slinging this this paint all over his quilt square. And then, you know, there was um, a younger person who did kind of an abstract. I mean, it was really cool to see what the community members came up with. So, there, yeah, so the, so some of the quilt squares um, were more traditional. There was one that had, um, like, strawberries drawn and and the different squares. There was one that was just very muted tones. Each, each square had a different color of a muted tone. There was some that were, like, way, it was almost like an 80s, like, <laughs> waves of neon vibrant, like, you know, colors that didn't really stay within the squares. I knew once they were installed on the mural itself and the mural was put up, that all of these pieces, even though they were very different, would make a cohesive quilt. <laughs> and just like a community, you know, we're all different and we can work together and make this piece that is vibrant and colorful.
0: I wanted to ask you just real quick about No Hating My Holler. It's like an evergreen, right? That, that yeah. design is going to be... It's going to be mentioned in the first couple of paragraphs of your obituary, probably.
2: (laughs) Probably. I mean, I think
0: you will top yourself. I mean, I mean that sounds morbid the way I'm phrasing it. Um, but where you and I are at the age where you start to like have things, you start to kind of, your life starts to be defined a little bit. Um, That's
2: true. Yeah. Yeah.
0: How did you first come up with that design?
2: Um, so in 2017, um, I was actually working with Appalachian Media Institute, um, at Apple shop in here in Wattsburg. And, um, we were working with youth and we got word that a group of neo-Nazis were coming to um, recruit in Pikeville, which is about an hour from here. And so one of the um, youths suggested that we have a art in response day, which I thought was awesome. You know, So we decided to do that. And the night beforehand this phrase just popped into my head, no hate in my holler. And so I do a lot of printmaking. I do a lot of block printing. And so the next day, you know, we had the art and response and that's I just sat down and sketched it out and, you know, cut a block and carved it and printed it. And no hate in my holler was born, posted it on my Facebook and um, it kind of, you know, blew up. So people, people really um, took to it and identified with it. And um, yeah, like you said, it's kind of, (laughs) for the last five years, it's, it it just keeps cycling and and growing and, and it's not always been for the best reasons. I mean, you know, sometimes when something horrible happens, there's a influx of desire for more of the t-shirts and stuff like that. But, you know, I always donate. 25, at least 25% of the proceeds from any of the merch that I sell with no hate in my holler to nonprofits working toward equality in the regions.
0: I think it's like the best of art in that it's taken on its own life. Once you kind of set it free in the world, what stories have people shared with you about it and what kind of stories have come back and left an impression on you?
2: You know, I've had, I've had so many people reach out to me and, and, um, Sorry, I might get a little <laughs> teary eyed because it's really um, just some of the the things that people have said that um, how important this has been to them, either going up here, being from here, living here and having something that they can um, get behind and say, look, you know, we're not all backward. We're not all. The stereotypical you know he you know um homophobic racist hillbillies you know I have a friend who um she messaged me the other day and and she was like you know as a lesbian who has a an african-American daughter you know i, I appreciate this so much and um you know that means a lot <laughs> that I can do something for people around here you know that really means a lot
0: So this design's five years old
2: Mm -hmm. now.
0: What do you think it means today?
2: Hopefully now we're at a point where this does not need to be said anymore. And there's always something new that happens that, okay, so, you know, this does need to be said again or reiterated in some way. No Hat in is probably the piece of artwork that I've made that I'm most proud of. And it probably, you know, if you want to know something about me, look at that piece. And that should tell you all that you need to know.
0: Wow. Yeah. What else did you want to say?
2: I think that's it. I'm going to start crying again.
0: <laughs> Lacey Hale, thank you so much for speaking with us on Inside Appalachia. Thank you. <laughs> that's Lacey Hale, Eastern Kentucky artist. You can see more of her work on LaceyHale.com. Or check out her Granny Shores mural, and no hate in print, on our website, wvpublic.org. West Virginia loves its monsters. At last count, the state is home to more than 20 cryptids, including Sheep Squatch, the Braxton County Monster, and of course, Mothman. People celebrate cryptids through festivals, games, podcasts, even beer. Since 2002, the town of Point Pleasant has held an annual Mothman festival, but it's been canceled the last two years because of COVID. So last year, two cryptozoology enthusiasts created an alternative event in Morgantown, it's called Cryptid Bash. This year, the Mothman Festival is set to come back, but Cryptid Bash is still going and becoming its own thing. Reporter Chris Schultz spoke with organizer
6: Michael Strayer, who
0: also co-hosts the podcast Moth Boys.
6: So Michael, why don't you uh, why don't you start us off by telling us exactly what Cryptid Bash is?
7: Cryptid Bash is a meeting of people within the cryptozoology community around the time last year mothman festival was canceled so we're like how can we put on an event for all of our our friends that are losing money from the mothman festival A bunch of artists musicians last year and uh everybody just followed we just it's just a bunch of people that love cryptozoology mothman flatwoods monster well it's all all like-minded people just uh getting together and celebrating cryptozoology
6: what exactly is cryptozoology and why do you and your group of fans find it so appealing
7: there's creatures out there that can't be explained by science. And that's what cryptozoology is. And uh, it just appeals to us because there's more to the world than just us. You know what I mean? And the things that we know about. And it's just, it's, it's cool. There's a whole folk the folklore thing behind it. And there's, it's just, there's just a sense of community too in it that you, you don't find in a lot of places. So it's a bunch of weirdos getting together and, just talking about these these cool stories essentially is what it is. That's why I personally love it, and I think that's why the fans love it too. Just it's just a cool stories to tell.
6: Michael, what brought you into cryptozoology originally?
7: There's a few things, actually. I mean, I have... My mom was really into aliens and UFOs and Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, that kind of stuff. Yeah, my mom was into all the weird stuff, ghosts and stuff. And then eventually, my personal interest, I got into the weird, weird, weird stuff by watching uh, The Mothman Prophecies with Richard Gere. I saw that in theaters with my dad. He took me to see that. Mothman was something I'd never heard of, you know? then that was... That, that blew my my teenage mind, you know, so uh, I was a big fan.
6: West Virginia is pretty well represented on the cryptozoology map. What do you think it is about the state that kind of primes it to be a center of, of of this world?
7: I think the storytelling here is is big. The folklore behind it, people telling each other stories and, you know, small towns, especially small towns. It's like a small town thing, passing stories along to each other. Hearing stories when you're young. I'm not from here, but, you know, I, I talk to people and they, I, I used to hear stories about this and that. And I feel like just West Virginia has has the most most creatures and the coolest creatures, I think. Mothman, obviously. And then you got the craft monster, Flatwoods monster. You have, you have a list of, of all these cool monsters coming from here that people are interested in. And I think it's just it's just the storytelling from here is so rich. And, and some people say that West Virginia is a window area. The pl- that's just like an area where reality kind of bends, you know, and things can come in and out.
6: Do you feel like you're adding to that folklore and that oral tradition?
7: I, I hope so. I hope that we're doing that. We do it in kind of a, a silly way, a goofy way. We have a different way of, of telling stories. You know, a lot a lot of podcasts and people that are telling these stories uh, do it very seriously. And that's, that's fine. That, that's great. We love it. But we come at it at, at an angle that's a little different. You know, that's a little, uh, we try to a little fresher and a little... We try to make it a little bit more funny. We try to laugh with it. You know, we try not to laugh at it too much, you know, but it's, you know, it's weird stuff, you know, and sometimes you can get a laugh out of it. So I think we're adding this this whole folklore thing to it because we're getting, we're trying to get younger, a younger crowd into it. We know there's a lot of serious podcasts out there and we love them, but we're trying to, we're trying to get a whole new generation in.
6: People who are maybe on the fence about coming to a cryptozoology event. What would you tell them about Cryptid Bash?
7: If you're not into cryptids, I mean, it's just, it's a good free event where you're going you're gonna to meet some really nice people that you can decide not to talk about cryptozoology, but if you want to, you know, you can talk about anything with these people. It's just some of the friendliest, some of the friendliest people I, I've ever met and some just great artists and musicians and speakers. We got, I just say it's, the people are really great. And I think that's, that's a reason enough to come just hang out for the day and see, see if you're into it, you know.
0: That was Cryptid Bash organizer, Michael Strayer, speaking with WVPB's Chris Schultz about Cryptid Bash. The event scheduled for Saturday, August 6th in Morgantown, West Virginia. Find out more at wvpublic.org. Coming up, we hear about motherhood behind bars.
3: Like we're learning. We're learning
5: how to be not just be parents, but parents in prison.
0: That's after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
8: I see the sunrise creeping in, everything changes like the desert wind, here she comes and then she's gone again, and I'm just a traveler on this earth. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.
0: Prison nursery programs allow incarcerated mothers to bond with their infants. But only eight states have prison nursery programs. Caitlin Thorne with the Ohio Valley Resource visited a nursery program in an Ohio prison and brings us this story.
9: She's the burping whisperer. A nursery inside of an Ohio prison is the only home that Axel Brote has ever known. He was brought there as a newborn with his mother, Morgan Brode, who vividly remembers feeling guilty that first day.
1: I mean, there is that thought where you're like,
10: man, like, this isn't right. Like, there's something in you where you're like, I hate that this is where you have to be brought home to.
9: Brode's guilt was eased in part by a warm reception within the nursery.
10: I got greeted at the door by a bunch of women who helped me carry in like my stuff from the hospital and him and they couldn't wait to see him and they were all so excited to see him like it, it really felt like a welcoming home. That home is the
9: Achieving Baby Care Success Program, a nursery within the Ohio Reformatory for Women that allows nonviolent offenders to keep their newborn babies with them during their incarceration. The nursery is in a separate building away from the prison's general population. Ernest Behorn is a corrections officer at the prison. He says he was skeptical of the program at first.
5: I thought that's kind of insane, (laughs) being inside here with uh, with with your children. But after working in the nursery program, I've seen uh, the positive. uh, What what actually happens with the child and the mother bonding? Some of the you can't uh, you can't replace that.
9: Those who make it into the program are lucky. Currently, there are only eight operational prison nurseries in the country. Most people who give birth while incarcerated are forced to give up their child. Dr. Ji Sun Yang, a researcher at Ohio University, says consistent interactions between mother and child help the infant's brain form. Not having that can lead to problems later in life.
7: It's depriving the opportunity can put the children at high risk in terms of a healthy growth.
9: Young says if an infant is passed from their mom to different family members or a foster care family, it can get mixed signals because of the different approaches to care.
7: That confusing mixed messages gives infants that sense of insecurity. That means infants will end up feeling very nervous and anxious and probably have a high stress
9: level. And postpartum mothers feel that trauma, too, when they don't get to bond with their babies. All right, any questions so far? Laura Pierce teaches parenting classes at the reformatory. They're gone 48 hours, some less, and they're back here, and all of a sudden it's like you're supposed to forget what just happened, but your body's gone, you know, your hormones are all over the place. So there's, there's a lot of grief, there's a lot of sadness there. Pierce has inmates from both the general population and the nursery program in her class. They focus on child development and how to interact with their children in a healthy way, which can be a struggle for parents in prison. It's a fight because they feel guilty, for one, they're here, but yet they want to help their kids. I've never come across one inmate that said, I want to
2: be a bad mom. They all want to be a better mom.
9: The moms in the program have the full responsibility of caring for the children and often help each other just as a family would. Axel Brote will spend the first 18 months of his life inside the prison. His mother, Morgan, says it's a struggle, but it helps having the other moms with her.
10: And to have that, like, with each other, like, it's, it's a bond, like, you really, like, we're learning. We're learning how to be, not just be parents, but parents in prison,
9: and uh, we're doing it together. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Caitlin Thorne.
0: On June 2nd, West Virginia Governor Jim Justice announced the state would cut back COVID-19 testing programs. Doctors and others in the medical community expressed concern that the next wave of COVID-19 would catch the state by surprise. But Chris Schultz reports that even with the highly infectious BA5 variant, that hasn't been the case.
6: The start of the COVID-19 pandemic in March of 2022 was a hectic time. That's how regional epidemiologist for Northeast West Virginia, Dr. Lucas Moore, remembers it.
8: It was just baptism by fire. And at that point, we didn't have the vaccines, and it was really scary. It was all hands on deck. It didn't matter what your role was at the health department. We had a job to do.
6: Moore is based out of the Monongalia County Health Department offices in Morgantown. He says that at its peak, the county's program would test 1,000 people on a single day.
8: A lot of people came in and they wanted to know, I'm going to be around family, or just for personal awareness if they were positive or not. But there were a lot of people who were visibly ill.
6: Data from the Department of Health and Human Resources' COVID-19 dashboard shows that more than 25,000 individual tests were administered across the state on a single day during the pandemic's peaks in January 2021 and again in January 2022. At $25 per testing kit and at least another $70 for lab processing, that single day would have cost close to $2.4 million, before factoring in labor costs. As Moore said, it was an all-hands-on-deck situation and health departments still had to complete their other, regular duties. Since then, things have changed significantly. Vaccines are readily available, and other mitigation processes, like quarantining and mask wearing, have become ubiquitous. The biggest change, however, is the availability of at-home testing. All of this drove a steep drop in engagement with community testing events. Moore says he and other public health officials always understood community testing had to end at some point, but Justice's announcement at the start of June still came as a surprise. Moore said calculating daily rates gave him and his community a clear path forward. Now, he's left with some doubts. First, at-home tests are antigen tests, which, while quick, are not as accurate as the PCR tests administered by health departments and doctors. Second, unless someone chooses to call into their local health department to report a positive test, which some do, there is no way for that data to reach epidemiologists.
8: My concern, and I think this is a shared concern at our health department, is with home tests so prevalent, we're underreporting what our true infection rate is, our true how many cases per day.
6: To be clear, PCR testing in West Virginia has not ended completely. Tests are still available at more select locations, like pharmacies and other healthcare providers. Dr. Abir Rahman is the Director of Epidemiology at the Huntington Health Department, He and his team secured grant funding to continue PCR testing, but he is realistic about diminishing data.
0: It's been a while that we are not completely relying on the case numbers because we knew that we are not getting the whole scenario. Regardless, the numbers we are getting, it was somewhat proportional to the
2: actual number.
6: Even with reduced testing, Rahman says other tracking tools like wastewater management have allowed public health to keep track of COVID-19. He also points to the use of existing data from across the country and even the world that is used to extrapolate local levels. Almost exactly a month after the end of community testing in West Virginia, the opportunity to put these new tracking methods to a true test came in the form of the latest variant, BA-5. Despite reduced testing, Rahman said in an email that BA-5 and other variants had been monitored from the outset. He said that this allowed his team to stay informed take preventative measures, and generally be prepared. As the pandemic has evolved, the goals of public health have evolved as well.
0: These few things, in addition to some other things, obviously changed the whole environment. Initially, of course, the numbers were really important, and it is still now. But as the focus has changed, uh, main focus is more towards preventing severe disease and preventing uh, healthcare strain.
6: Ultimately, community testing at the scale West Virginia was conducting was no longer an efficient way to address the virus.
5: When you go from events that have hundreds of people down to less than 10, or in some cases, nobody showed up, they became a less efficient and effective way for us to get data that we
6: need. Retired Major General James Hoyer is the director of the Governor's Joint Interagency Task Force. Hoyer said the end of community testing signals a new phase in the pandemic, but is quick to clarify that we are very much still in it.
5: I wish I could say that we were at the endemic phase right now, but I think Dr. Marsh and the rest of the team would say we're not sure we're quite there yet.
6: Using all the tools available to them, Hoyer is confident the state can move forward without the large amounts of information community testing provided. But he says the most important tool of them all is one many West Virginians still haven't used, the COVID-19 vaccine. With a new type of vaccine set to be approved by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the coming weeks, Hoyer and others are hopeful to see the state's vaccine uptake increase. Unlike existing vaccines from Johnson & Johnson or Moderna that use mRNA technology to immunize against COVID-19, the Novavax vaccine uses more traditional protein-based technology.
5: The vaccine is not about keeping you from getting COVID. The vaccine is about lessening your possibility of getting seriously ill or dying from
6: COVID. Moore, Rahman, and Hoyer all agree that the pandemic is still not over, but the resources available have made it manageable. I mean,
8: COVID, you think about the past two plus years, has taken a lot of things from people. Live your life, take appropriate precautions, and you're going to have to roll with the punches. Public health, we're going to do our very best to keep the community safe, whatever that might be.
6: For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown.
0: In June, a natural gas company lost control of a gas well in Greene County, Pennsylvania. Residents have been waiting for test results to show whether it affected their drinking water. For State Impact Pennsylvania, the Allegheny Front's Reed Fraser reports...
11: James Gillen was at his home in the hamlet of New Freeport when a neighbor came looking for him. Um, He'd come down here because he knows I work for the gas company, and he'd found a geyser in his yard over there. The geyser was 15 feet high, coming out of an abandoned gas well. Gillen is a supervisor in Freeport Township, and he's also a pipeline inspector who works for a contractor of EQT, which is fracking nearby. The neighbor, who also works in the industry, suspected the geyser was due to a drilling accident called a fracout, out where liquids used in the fracking process to unlock gas and dense rocks gets into a nearby well. He just asked if I knew anything about what happens when you get a frac out and I was like, i never seen one. So we kind of investigated together, and
5: just common knowledge of the industry, I kind of had an idea what it was, and
11: contacted EQT as quick as possible. EQT shut down a nearby fracking operation called the lumber well and then restarted it to see if liquids it was using there were resurfacing at the abandoned well. The results were immediate, Gillen says. You could just hear it roaring through the hole, and then you could see the gas coming out, and then you could see the water. And by the time they got it shut down, it it receded to where there was nothing there. The Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection says EQT confirmed that fracking liquids used at the lumber well were getting into the abandoned well. Despite this, EQT publicly says it's not sure if the two wells were connected. In any case, residents are calling the event a frackout, which Gillen says affected his neighbor's well water, though his own appears to be fine. Others nearby have reported strange odors in their water and pets refusing to drink it. Elizabeth Pebley lives across a small valley from the lumber pad. Since the frack out, she's noticed a strange odor to her water, which she gives me a sample of. It, it almost smells like musty or something. Musty, yeah. It's like a musty rust smell or some sort. Pebley hasn't drunk well water since she developed health problems while living near fracking in West Virginia more than a decade ago. But she still cooks and bathes with it. She's upset she read about the frack out on Facebook and that EQT didn't tell her, though state law only requires it notify DEP. If it turns out her water is contaminated, she wants the company to fix it. Some of her neighbors are buying water rather than drink out of their wells. And for the people in New Freeport
1: that was like right there beside the frack out. They should be doing stuff for them right now. They shouldn't be waiting until they get the results back. They know that there's something wrong.
11: EQT says its own sampling has shown, quote, no other areas of concern at this time. But some neighbors have their doubts. Down a forested hillside, Tom Busoletti bushwhacks to an abandoned well in the woods near his home. It's a waist-high metal pipe sticking vertically out of the ground. Bussoletti took an EQT surveyor here before the company drilled the lumber pad. His recollection is that back then, the abandoned well had a pool of water in the middle completely still. Mm -hmm. Now, there's gas bubbling out of the ground, percolating through the water. I I walked up on it, and as I walked up, I said, well, no change. But then when I looked down in, it's percolating.
5: That, to me, is a change. So the question is,
11: Is that change caused by the fracking or not? He said a DEP inspector confirmed the gas is methane. The agency says it can't say whether this well was affected by the frackout, but it has issued several violations to EQT, and it says it's still investigating. Reed Frazier, State Impact, Pennsylvania.
0: Appalachia is seeing more flooding. As we are making this week's show, Central Appalachia was slammed with extreme rain and flooding in eastern Kentucky and southwest Virginia. As of the day, at least 28 people are dead in Kentucky, and that number may rise. Flooding is a problem throughout West Virginia too. Randy Yoey spoke with State Senator Stephen Baldwin.
12: West Virginia leads the nation in flooding disasters over the past decade. Is that just because we're the mountain state, and valleys come with mountains? Or are we lacking in mitigation plans and efforts? Both,
10: I think. Um, so, I mean, it, it's it's a result of our topography and geography. Like there, there are just some things we we cannot change about that. Um, but I think we can do a better job of planning and mitigating through our infrastructure, and that that's the point of all these projects. You know, rebuilding homes, elevating them, um, tearing down um, structures that were in in the floodplain or in the floodway. And then, you know, allowing folks to rebuild in a place that isn't Um, stormwater systems, uh, roadways, culverts, infrastructure, streams, creeks, you know, there is a dams. There's a very long list of infrastructure items we need to do um, to make sure it doesn't happen as much in the future to the extent we can control it.
12: Well, that leads into the question that we often hear after flash floods and the damage and even deaths that they cause about, preventive stream cleaning and mismanaged floodplain construction, what you've just been talking about. But often it seems there's little action. Do we need to legislate a dedicated act, a law that funds those flood mitigation efforts?
10: Um, I, I was very encouraged to hear Senator Swope you know, say last time that uh, flood relief and flood mitigation needs to be one of our major infrastructure categories moving forward. I, I agree with him wholeheartedly, um, not just generally but specifically in relation to the ARPA funds that we've received, the American Rescue Plan funds, um, because this is going to save lives in the future and it's going to save a significant amount of money. Because as you said, you know we deal with this all the time, and if we do a better job planning on the front end, I think we're better prepared. And The State Resiliency Office is in the midst right now of, you know, finalizing a new floodplain. Uh, excuse me, a new flood plan. Um, when the June 2016 flood hit, we had a plan that was sitting on a shelf for years and wasn't being enacted. So I think that's the key. We've got to have a plan, uh, and we've got to have people involved actively in executing that
12: plan. Any key mitigation elements in that plan? Current day technologies like the new stream gauges and otherwise that that need implementation and action right away? Yeah, well, we've done a little bit that that's a good example, stream gauges. We've done a little bit of
10: work of that on that over the last couple of years, because what we had before, and if you look at the old plan that was sitting on a shelf, it actually had recommendations about stream gauges. (laughs) Um, uh, Unfortunately, they weren't realized. Um, So we had stream gauges on rivers but where we are seeing flooding now are not necessarily along our major rivers, but along our streams and creeks. And so that that's where we did not have gauges. So we have added some gauges since the June 2016 flood in the areas that flooded, um, but but we need more badly. that That's a good example of a, a growing edge of infrastructure.
12: Well, you can gauge the challenge on a creek or stream. Gauging is one thing, cleaning it out is another, isn't it?
10: It is. Um, and, you know, that falls to the conservation department, which is an important partner in, in flood mitigation. However, um, like, you know, that that's one of the first things that people always talk about is dredging. You know, we need to do a better job of dredging. Um, if you look at the data and you look even like back at that previous um, flood mitigation plan and the plan that they're working on now, you um, I'm not sure that the reality matches what we think it is. You know, I, I'm not sure that dredging is the, the silver bullet that we think it is. It's important. Um, but I, I again, I just I don't think it's that silver bullet.
12: So the agenda for the Joint Legislative Committee on Flooding includes you presenting an update on workgroup on ARPA funds for demolition. What's that about?
10: We are hoping to get um, a pot of money to be able to do flood demolitions that Commerce Department could not do with the funds they received from the federal government. Basically, they had too many. They're, they didn't have enough money to do everything. So we we want to propose to the legislature and the governor that we set aside some money specifically to do that from ARPA funds.
12: How do you think the national rise in climate change impacts West Virginia flooding?
10: Well, I mean, if you look at the data, it shows that we are um, we are on the leading edge of this. You know, West Virginia has the highest risk for flooding um, in in the United States moving forward, and I I certainly think climate change plays a part in that, and simply because of our experience. I mean, we have seen more storms. Um, uh, with a uh, higher intensity, higher volume of, of rain, for example, you know, getting nine inches in a couple of hours. Um, so the frequency and intensity of storms has changed. And um, that has a huge effect on us when you consider our geography and topography. We had obviously the major flood in 2016 that affected a huge portion of the state, but we have had significant flooding events across the state since then. You know, obviously in in Huntington, in your area, in southern West Virginia, McDowell County, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, So this is continually happening and we have got to continue to make it a priority rather than just being reactive.
0: That was West Virginia Senator Stephen Baldwin talking with Randy Yohi about the challenges of flood mitigation. In the 1800s, the Hammonds family moved from Kentucky to what would become Pocahontas and Randolph counties in West Virginia. Generations later, the family is known for storytelling and music, including the historic recordings of the Library of Congress. In 2020, members of the family were inducted into the West Virginia Music Hall of Fame. Trevor Hammonds is the great-grandson of one of the inductees, Lee Hammonds. Now, Trevor never met his great-grandfather or any of the other inductees, but their old-time music and love of the mountains live on in his determination to carry their legacy forward. We revisit this story from 2020 by Folkways reporter Heather Nyday.
3: This is Abe's Retreat. I learned this counter from Dwight Diller.
13: This is Trevor Hammonds playing at a local radio station in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, two years ago, a few days before his 18th birthday. Trevor is a quiet young man who doesn't go out of his way to draw attention to himself. That is, until he picks up the banjo. At festivals and competitions, his style of banjo picking draws crowds and wins awards. The Vandalia Gathering is an annual festival held in Charleston, West Virginia, devoted to old-time and bluegrass music. At the Vandalia Gathering the past few years, he's been one of the top five musicians in the old-time banjo category, an honor usually awarded to older musicians. Trevor says he tries to preserve his family's style of music by using the same old-time Appalachian style of finger-picking on the banjo that was used by his great-grandfather Lee Hammonds and by Sherman Hammonds. It's a style of finger-picking similar to claw hammer that uses the thumb and tips of the fingers to play the strings in a downward motion. In the 1940s, Earl Scruggs introduced his bluegrass style of playing the banjo that uses picks on the thumb, index, and middle fingers that allow the musician to play the notes much faster. Trevor says he uses his family specific claw hammer technique because he wants to see his family's unique style of music continue to be played and appreciated.
3: He had a really light touch, when I'm playing his tunes... I like to use a really light touch to make sure that it's exactly the same. I try to get it, you know, to my ear how it would sound exactly like he
13: would. Trevor doesn't know how or if Lee was related to Sherman, but he does know they were good friends. He says Sherman had a very different style of playing.
3: Sherman, he used a really, really firm, just driving hand. You know, they had the ability to control how it sounded because they understood it, just like I do. He had to figure that stuff out. It's really hard.
13: He first heard Lee playing the banjo when he was seven or eight years old. The music was from a recording done by local musician Dwight Diller and included old-time tunes such as Calloway, Soldier's Joy, and Pretty Polly. Trevor remembers the effect it had on him.
3: When I heard that, it had this haunting sound to it. It sounded really old, and it just kind of caught my attention.
13: Trevor was eight years old when he began taking music lessons. At first, he began learning guitar. But after a few months, he wanted more of a challenge.
3: But After you learn the basics on guitar, you're just keeping time, especially with old time, unless you get into flat picking.
13: But then Trevor saw one of his friends playing a banjo at a local jam session in Marlington. He remembered those old recordings of his great-grandfather and decided he had to learn the banjo.
3: I loved it, the sound of it. I told my mom that next
13: week before my lesson, I told her I was sick because I didn't want to go. I wanted to play the banjo. His teacher, Pam Lund, saw through the ruse and said she would let him try her banjo if he came to the lesson. From the very first note, Trevor said playing the banjo came easily to him.
3: Whenever I picked up the banjo, I was just—it's like I flew away with it. it. It came so natural to me. I don't like to say, but I didn't have to try to play it.
13: His music teacher, Pam, didn't want to be interviewed for this story. She prefers to have the spotlight on Trevor, as she does with all her students. But Trevor's musical education would probably not have happened if not for her, When she moved to Pocahontas County in the 1970s, Pam learned the songs of the Hammonds family from other musicians who'd played with Lee and Sherman. She, in turn, taught the music to her young students, including Trevor.
3: Pam, if it wasn't for her, you know, I don't think I'd appreciate anybody more in this world than her, because I wouldn't have anything if it wasn't for her.
13: Through Trevor, Pam has ensured that the legacy of the Hammonds music will continue within the Hammonds family. To lose that connection would be a big loss, says Carl Fleischhauer, a folklorist retired from the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. He says the Hammonds had unique talents. They excelled at their musical craft.
5: It's not exactly that they were different and what they knew was different from other people, it was that, in a sense, it was more distilled and brought to a, a finer polish. Why is Rembrandt a better painter than the other painters who were active in Holland at that time? And the answer is, well, he's not different; he was just better than they were.
13: Fleischhauer and fellow folklorist Alan Jabour made numerous visits in the early 70s to Pocahontas County. They came to watch the Hammonds family play music. They asked for their permission to record them so they could preserve their songs. In 1973, they compiled these recordings into a double album recording for the Library of Congress. Today, it's considered the comprehensive album of the family's musical legacy. Fleischhauer says there was so much more to the Hammonds than just their music.
5: Almost every family member had a rich sense of place and past and a wonderful story. Storytelling.
13: That's why he also recorded interviews with the Hammonds of their stories and riddles and tall tales. Here's a clip of Maggie Hammonds saying a riddle for a common summertime plant. Well, it's white
1: as snow, and snow it ain't, and it's green as grass and grass it ain't, and it's red as blood and blood it ain't, and it's black as ink and inky.
13: Did you figure it out? She's talking about the blackberry bush. When it blooms, it has a white flower. Then when the berries form, they're green at first, then they turn red, and finally black when they're ripe.
12: It really
5: was a kind of immersion experience to visit those family members.
13: Trevor grew up listening to stories about how they lived from his dad and from uncles, aunts, and cousins. Some of the Hammonds, like Sherman and Maggie, stayed close to home and lived off the land, while others, like Lee, had to leave home to find work to support a growing family.
3: He didn't play music for over 50 years. He left and went to work. He worked at so many different places, logging, a duck farm, just anything he could to help his family, he left. And he came back, he picked the banjo up, and he could still play it. I mean, he quit playing music for so long, but it was for a good reason. And you know, the other ones, you know, they were like hunter-gatherers, I like to call them. Lived off the land, it's totally different.
13: Trevor says he sees a lot of his great-grandfather's story in his own experience. He, too, is finding a way to continue his music while making a living through labor-intensive work. After Trevor graduated from high school, he attended college but quit when his mother became ill. It would be almost impossible to support himself and help his mother if he only taught and performed music and stayed in Pocahontas County. So instead... He's chosen to work at a lumber mill so he can stay close to his home place. Eventually, he's hoping to take a course in commercial truck driving and to find work that will allow him to stay close to home. In 2019, Trevor taught a week-long course in banjo at the annual Allegheny Echoes Music Workshop series in Marlington.
3: Last year was my first year teaching Allegheny Echoes. If there's younger kids in there, and enjoyment I have just watching, you know, especially if they're interested, you know, they really want to actually learn. It's, it's even more special watching them take it in.
13: Trevor is hoping to teach again this year. The camp, originally scheduled for late June, has been postponed until later in the year. In the meantime, Trevor says he hopes to be able to teach banjo to students over the Internet to continue to pass on his musical knowledge to more people. He's also excited about playing his family's music at the West Virginia Music Hall of Fame Induction Ceremony in Charleston. That event, which had been scheduled for April, has now been rescheduled for November 14th. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Heather Nyday in Marlinton, West Virginia.
0: Live music is rebounding since pandemic restrictions were lifted. In July, the Hammonds family hosted its first family fiddle and banjo contest in world-class jam in Pocahontas County. And as we're recording, my corner of Appalachia is receiving an influx of thousands of people for Floyd Fest. And the Appalachian String Band Festival returned at Camp Washington Carver near the New River Gorge in Fayetteville. We hope you're getting to enjoy music this summer, too. Tell us about it by writing to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org or... Find us on Facebook at West Virginia Public Broadcasting or on Instagram at WV Public. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week is by Long Point String Band, Ona, Chris Stapleton, and the Hammonds family. Bill Lynch is our producer. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.
8: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs, to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.